Well, welcome to Grace Wave Baptist Church, and this is our Sunday School lesson for June 27th of 2021. And uh, it's really hard to believe that we are at the end of June already. Time is going by so fast. Now, if you're listening to uh, this simply by audio, then you have no idea about our setup here. But if you're watching this on video, you may wonder what in the world is going on. And this is uh, the middle of Bible school. And so we decided just to uh, record here and leave it up as a reminder for you to pray for the uh, teachers and the workers and the kids that are in vacation Bible school this week. And so uh, remember to do that. If you're happening to, wa happening to watch this after the fact, you can still pray and pray that what the kids were taught would bear uh, much fruit. Obviously, the theme is uh, being in a circus, the greatest story ever told, and uh, we're having a great time. So anyway, uh, thank you for those of you who do work in VBS and uh, make all of this happen. Now, we are uh, again in the New City Catechism. There are 52 questions. I don't know what number this one is, but uh, we're not even halfway yet. But the question is, why must the Redeemer be truly God? Why must the Redeemer be truly God? When I was in uh, Bible college, we studied in sy systematic theology different theories of the atonement. And uh, one of them was called the moral influence theory, that all Jesus is really doing when he died was giving us an example. You know, he was showing us how to be committed to God, how to be committed to a cause, to the point of even dying for it, to be a martyr. And they would say that was important because especially in the early church, and of course it would be true in certain places today, Christians are called upon to give their lives for the Lord, and Jesus showed us how to do that. Uh, my problem with that is, number one, that's not the way the Bible portrays the death of Christ. Secondly, that makes Christ more of a victim than it does a victor, okay? And then thirdly, it doesn't require him to be deity in order to do that. Anybody can die for a cause. I uh, thought about that... Um, Back in the very early 60s, the Buddhist monk in Vietnam that was protesting the government, and uh, he got out of a car at an intersection, they doused him with gasoline, and then he lit himself on fire. Now that doesn't atone for anything that may get media attention, and of course it's a sad situation that anybody would do that or feel the urge to do that, but it doesn't do anything for anybody spiritually. It doesn't atone. It doesn't do anything like that. In fact, think about this. <clears throat> if Jesus were not God, then his death on the cross would be no more effective for you or for me than the two thieves that died on either side of him or anyone else of the thousands that were crucified by the Romans. I used to sing a song. Uh, Gordon Jensen wrote it. And it said, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace. 
but Jesus, God's son, took my place. Now, I appreciate what he was trying to say, and I appreciate the substitutionary aspect of that, because that certainly is true. But here's the thing, and here's the reason I don't sing that song anymore. Had I been on the cross, I would have died and gone to hell. Had I been on the cross in the place of Jesus, you couldn't be saved because all it would be is another sinner like the two thieves hanging on the cross who need redemption rather than someone who can provide redemption. And so that's very important. And so uh, let's take a look at the answer and then we'll look at some uh, scripture and some other principles. And by the way, just as a reminder, whenever I do this, the uh, question and the answer and the scripture reference are copied off of a a website for uh, the New City Catechism, but the uh, points and everything on every lesson, those are my own commentaries and my own um, uh, teachings on all of this. So it's not just copy and paste uh, every week. So Here's the answer, that because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Now, that wording is really important because it's through his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect. It wasn't tainted in any way. If I were to be the one on the cross or you were to be the one on the cross suffering, that suffering would be for our own sin and would be deserved. For Jesus, it wasn't deserved. He's the innocent dying for the guilty. And then also it says, perfect and effective and that, the, and that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Now that's important because even the uh, sinner, the lost sinner, is going to bear the righteous anger of God for his sin. But he's not going to be able to overcome death. He's not going to be able to triumph over anything like that. Only God could do that. And so again, in the hypostatic union, Christ was 100% man and 100% God. And both of those have a point for the atonement of sinners like you and sinners like me. He's got to be able to bear the Father's righteous anger, and he's also got to be able to overcome death, not suffer under death as a victim, and uh, for it not to be a permanent state. Acts chapter 2, verse 24, this is in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because he was not, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Years ago, I had an assignment to do uh, original language studies on that verse. And of course, that would be in uh, New Testament Greek, Koine Greek. And uh, that word held, I think in some translations, if I'm remembering properly, it is the word seized. The idea there was that the pains of death uh, could not 
hold him. I think the King James even uses the word holden or something like that. Uh, seize him. They could not keep him. What did that word mean? And the word actually means to seize or to guard as a prisoner. And that gives you insight of what was happening when Jesus died and his body was laid in the tomb. This is one of the reasons I don't believe Satan, uh, you know, popped open a bottle of Jack Daniels and said, let's all have a party or anything like that. I think he was terrified because Peter tells us here that when Jesus is in the tomb before his resurrection, that the, um, to get this right here, that the pangs of death were doing what? They were seizing him, holding him, guarding him as a prisoner. I think that's where you find the situation of Jesus before his resurrection. I think that uh, Satan was guarding that tomb, just like the Roman soldiers were, but this is in a spiritual sense, that there were demons all around that tomb, and the assignment was, do not let him rise. But it wasn't possible for them to hold on to him, and so that body began to uh, breathe again, and that heart began to beat again, and Jesus came up out of the grave, and can you imagine what that was like? In fact, the Bible says that the two soldiers, they became like dead men, and uh, they were terrified, and yet they were not redeemed by that. That's hard to believe. People say that if anybody would see the resurrected Christ, how could they help but be saved? Well, there's two of them that weren't, as far as we know, and uh, later on, they're bribed by Jewish officials to say that the disciples came and stole the body. Um, this is amazing. They witnessed the cornerstone event of human history and yet took a bribe and lied to keep people from believing the truth. But the truth is that death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him from rising again. We sing that every once in a while in the song, Glorious Day. And uh, that's exactly what these verses are talking about because Jesus is more than just a mere human. Jesus is more than just a man who died on the cross and then somehow his body disappeared. This is the God-man dying and there are several reasons why he had to be God. Um, as I was studying for this, I went to uh, Erickson's systematic theology, and um, he asked the question, did Jesus claim to be God? Now, why is this important? I've heard all my life from atheists and intellectuals and uh, just plain average run-of-the-mill lost people that make this statement, Jesus never claimed to be God. Why are you making him something that he is not? Why are you elevating him in a way that the Bible does not elevate him? Well, um, just to read this, Dr. Erickson says, it is true that Jesus did not make an explicit and overt claim to deity. He did not say in so many words, I am God. What we do find, however, 
are claims that would be inappropriate if made by someone who is less than God. For example, Jesus said that he would send, quote, his angels, unquote, in Matthew 13, 41. And elsewhere, they are spoken of as, quote, the angels of God, unquote, Luke chapter 12, verse 8 and 9 and 15, 10. That reference is particularly significant for he spoke not only of the angels, but also of the kingdom as his. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. This kingdom is repeatedly referred to as the kingdom of God, even in Matthew's gospel, where one would expect to find kingdom of heaven instead. And so uh, what Dr. Erickson is pointing out that, uh, and, he, and that's not exhaustive by any extent, that Jesus makes these references that everybody in that day and in that era understood what he was saying. They didn't play games with it. They took it seriously. In fact, um, they charged him with blasphemy because they said he claimed to be the son of God and they say he claimed to be God, made himself out to be God. Even those references to his angels, well, the angels belong to God. His kingdom, well, the kingdom belongs to God. And so um, Jesus knew who he was and he wasn't ignorant about this and he didn't become the son of God at his baptism or anything like that. He was born the son of God, 100% man, 100% God. Now, um, the Bible says in John chapter one, verse one, that uh, Jesus had to be human to die, but God to be qualified to die. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh. So whoever this was, this word that John speaks of, was with God and was God, and then became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay? That ought to make it really, really clear and solid. Jesus was indeed human, but he was also God. And his humanity enabled him to shed blood and die, of course. And his deity, it means his being God, made him perfect and unblemished. We had a problem because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. And how can we be made righteous? Well, there has to be a righteous substitute for us. That's taught from the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, an animal was killed and animal skins were put on them to cover their shame and their nakedness. And all the way through Cain and Abel's sacrifice, for example, one was accepted and one was not. And it was Abel's sacrifice that was accepted because it was the death, the shed blood of uh, the lamb and Cain's was not accepted because it was the 
work of his own hands, trying to be acceptable to God, and on through the sacrificial system. But we have to keep in mind all of those animals that died, they were under the curse, under the curse that's over earth and creation and nature because of Adam uh, and, and his sin. But it all pointed and pictured to one day there would be a perfect sacrifice that wouldn't need to be offered over and over and over, just one time. And that's the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why was that sacrifice so perfect? Well, it wasn't because of merely the humanity of Jesus. It was because of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That made everything perfect, his obedience, and his uh, sinless life, all of those things. And also it made his death sufficient and it made it effective for those of us who will believe in him. So he had to be human in order to die. But also he had to be an infinite being to absorb the Father's wrath. You know, we don't hear much about the anger of God anymore. The psalmist says that the Lord is angry with sinners every day. We uh, forget about the fact that a God of love and a God of patience and a God of peace, a God of uh, second chances or many more than that, a God who is willing and eager to forgive, he only does that and only shows those things through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we forget that those who do not believe in Christ, well, think about John 3, 16, you know that verse. And right after that, it says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order to save the world. And then we are told that those who believe have eternal life. Those who do not believe, they are condemned. And this word is very important they are condemned already. They're not waiting to be condemned. They're already under the condemnation of God. And God has strong feelings about those who continue in sin because he hates sin. And he has strong feelings about this because to reject his son is, of course, to reject him. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 20 says... For in him, speaking of Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so anyone who refuses to believe that and accept that, what do you think the Father thinks of them and of their situation. What do you think hell is like? What is it that fuels the fires of hell? I believe that it is the wrath as well as the glory of God. And I think the glory of God is there in hell as a torment to everyone that is there. They can't stand the glory of God. They hate the glory of God. They're against the glory of God. Their nature once they get in hell, doesn't change. And also, think about this, the wrath of God for their sin. The wrath of God is either going to come upon you 
or if you're a believer, it comes upon Christ, but it does come. And it's amazing that Jesus would take that, what we would deserve in hell, and he took it upon himself, if you can imagine, and reconciled us and made peace between us and God the Father by the blood of his cross. Now, no mere human could take the brunt of God's wrath. No mere human could take the brunt of God's wrath. If Jesus were merely human, whenever God poured his wrath upon Christ on the cross, he couldn't have stood it. He couldn't have overcome it. He would not be able to absorb it. In three hours, Jesus took what it would have taken an eternity in hell for us. How does he do that? How in the world can one man die in our place and take the hell that we deserved, and not only the hell that we deserved, but the hell that everyone who would trust him deserved, and God the Father pours out all of the anger that he had toward us and millions of other Christians and puts it all on one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how could he do that in three hours? Because he was not only man, he was God. And the infinite Son of God took the infinite punishment in hell. Did you hear that? The infinite Son of God took the infinite punishment of hell that you deserved, and he was able to absorb the wrath of God in three hours on the cross. Couldn't have done that had he been simply a human. God did that for us. Number three, Jesus had to be God to conquer death, hell, and the grave. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. All of us collectively couldn't do it. We could even have an, uh, an uprising against the grave, and we couldn't do it. We could go to all of the people that are in heaven today or all of the people that are in hell today, get them all together and say, we're going to have an uprising and a rebellion against death. We're not going to put up with this anymore. And we couldn't do it. You at your best couldn't do it. And you certainly couldn't do it at your worst. But the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation chapter 1, this one man did it for us. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. The apostle John, <clears throat> the beloved disciple, says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. When you think about that, who has the keys? Keys symbolize ownership. Keys symbolize authority. I have the keys in my pocket right here to my uh, truck. I've got keys on here to my office. I've got keys on here to my house. What does that mean? I can go out there and start that truck up anytime I want to and drive it anywhere I want to. And nobody can challenge that or say anything about it because I own it. I can walk into my house at uh, five o'clock today, or I can walk into that house at three o'clock in the morning. It doesn't matter. 
And uh, why? Because I own it. I own it. It's mine. I have authority over that. What is Jesus saying? That death, hell, and the grave have been conquered by him, that he has the keys. The devil no longer has them. And that means that Jesus is in perfect authoritarian control over those things. Now, you and I don't own the keys. We are subject to the laws of sin and death. And because of uh, our sin, we are going to die. The wages of sin is death. But that would be a terrifying prospect because we would die and go to hell and there's nothing we could do to get out of it. There's nothing we could do to keep from going there except this one thing. Jesus came and died as the God-man. And when his body died, Jesus, as God, went and took the keys from the devil. He robbed the devil of his weapon, which is death and fear of death. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys. I'm glad they're in the hands of someone who has authority, who has, a pow who has power over all of that, who conquered it for us, because a mere human could never conquer any of those things. When we uh, think about whatever it is that is going on in hell, the suffering, one thing comes to my mind. They have absolutely zero control over it. They can't say we adjourn, we're going to take a recess, we're going to have a break. They can't do that. They can't decide the scope or the intensity of their suffering. They don't have their hand on the thermostat, do they? And um, by the way, just so you know, uh, hell is not a place where the devil walks around and uh, pokes people with a pitchfork or any silly, inane thing like that. In fact, hell is a place, the lake of fire is a place that Jesus said is prepared for the devil and his angels, the demons of hell. They are going to be tormented there. They're not going to like it any more than you are if you go there. And the torment is going to come from God, not from the devil. And it's not in the devil's control, and it is not in the sinner's control when they're in hell. They can't control it, and they can't escape it. There's no exit. There's no way out. There's no conspiracy. There's no uprising. There's no rebellion that can ever get them out of hell. Once you're there, you're there, and you're stuck there for eternity. And they cannot conquer it. They were to have a rebellion, uh, they would be defeated, and they would not be able to uh, get out of it even then. But the amazing thing that one man, Christ, has overcome all of that. He did, as God, what we could never do for ourselves. That's the gospel. That's good news, isn't it? He is our substitute. Number four, Jesus had to be God to grant forgiveness. Jesus had to be God to grant forgiveness. Now, this is one of the things that really would hang the Pharisees up. And uh, if you don't know who Jesus is, and you don't accept him as the God-man, the Messiah, well, then they were right. In Mark chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, 
Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know what? They're right. They're right. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now listen to this. But that you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, when you think about that, what was Jesus doing? Remember at the very beginning of the lesson where we uh, said that he, Jesus never overtly claimed to be God? Well, it sure sounds like it there, doesn't it? He has authority on earth to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God? And that's a good question. No one. But Jesus has that power, and Jesus has that authority, and for one reason and one reason only, he is God. God has been offended by our sins, and only the one who is offended can actually forgive. You know, if somebody came and they uh, broke into your house and they stole some priceless heirlooms out of your house, and let's say that person's name is Bob, okay? And uh, Bob starts feeling bad about it, and I go up to Bob and I say, Hey, Bob, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's okay. You're forgiven. Well, you might take issue with that, and you might be offended yourself by that, because I don't have the power to forgive someone who sinned against you. You would have to be the one who would offer that forgiveness. It would be different if it were coming for you, and you say, Bob, I forgive you for what you did to me, but I don't have that right. Well, the point of that is, only God can forgive sins, because only God is actually offended by our sins. And so he's the one who has to give our forgiveness. We are forgiven by God because of the sacrifice of the God-man who is Jesus. So when you think about that, the atonement of Christ, remember that none of this works from a theological standpoint or just a gospel standpoint, if Jesus Christ is not man. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. At the same time, he has to be much more than just a mere human. He can't have a sin nature. And he has to be able to perfectly obey God, purely obey God, and effectively obey God, and die on a cross for sinners like me. And only God could do that. So the amazing thing is that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God so that he can fulfill everything that is required in our salvation. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. That is sound doctrine 
That is good theology, and that's what is necessary to believe in order to have your sins forgiven and to go to heaven. So I hope you've trusted in Christ in that way, and I hope you've submitted to him as Lord. And if you have, I hope you're rejoicing right now that joy bells are ringing in your heart, that you are free, and there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and that is why. So thank you for listening to this as a Sunday school teacher. May God bless you this next Sunday as you teach the Word of God to your people. And for those of you who might have missed Sunday school and you're wanting to catch up, God bless you, and thank you for doing that. And uh, we appreciate you tuning in for all of this. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.